Hello and welcome to the Backtracker History Show podcast with me, Alice. Join me as I go delving through the archives to find out more about the people, places and events from the past. Listen to tales of dastardly pirates and amazing innovators, catastrophic accidents and devious crimes. This podcast has it all. And this episode is no exception. So get ready to give your ears a treat and maybe learn a few things on the way. As I don't believe in sanitising the facts of history, these episodes may contain information that some people find disturbing. Today's main event occurred in 1920, but what else happened that year? Well, on the 5th to the 30th of April, there was the Blind March, which was a protest march of 250 blindmen from across Britain to London. It was organised by the National League of the Blind to protest poor working conditions and poverty experienced by blind people. In particular, concerns were raised over the conditions in workshops run to provide employment to the visually impaired by various charities. The marchers assembled at Newport, Manchester and Leeds on the 5th of April and marched to London, assembling at Trafalgar Square on the 25th of April. They were greeted by a crowd of 10,000 who listened to speeches from Herbert Morrison and trade union leaders. This march served as an inspiration for the more famous 1936 Jarrow March against unemployment, in which the NLB also participated. Also that year, on the 18th of May, women lecturers were given equal status to their male colleagues at the University of Oxford. On the 15th of June, Australian soprano Nellie Melba becomes history's first well-known performer to make a radio broadcast when she sings two arias as part of the series of Marconi broadcasts from Chelmsford. On the 28th of July, the first women jury members in England are empanelled at Bristol Quarter Sessions. On the 10th of November, the body of the unknown warrior arrives from France aboard HMS Verdun. And on the 15th of December, Vaughan Williams' The Lark Ascending is premiered in its original version for violin and piano, with Marie Hall as violinist at Shirehampton, near Bristol. But our story concerns Charles Stevens, who was a 58-year-old barber from Bristol, where he acquired a reputation of being a daredevil through a number of high dives and several parachute jumps. Locally, he was known as the Demon Barber of Bristol. Word of the Week And this week, I give you... God's Acre, which isn't really one word, but you know what I mean. Anyway, it's a churchyard burial area. The phrase is a translation of the German word Gottsacker, God's Field, where the souls of the faithful are sown. The phrase has also been used for the dedication of a portion of a farm field or garden plot for growing food that will be given to the needy. 
Charles Stevens, the 58-year-old demon barber from Bedminster, Bristol, describes an incident that happened to him when he was young that might have been the start of his love of adrenaline-inducing situations. I was born in Bristol in 1862, and because I was a delicate child, I was put to learn the barber business. Then I went to work in the coal pits in South Wales. When I was 16 years old, I was deep in the pit one day with a fellow workman when a coal car broke loose and dashed down the long incline towards us. There seemed to be no chance of our salvation. We could see the car rushing with increasing velocity. 20 feet from us, it jumped the track and we were unhurt. My companion was driven crazy with fright and I have to say that I was at work in the pit the next day. That settles me. If there was anything that could frighten me, it would have been that adventure. When I saw an advertisement asking for a man of nerve to take parachute jumps, I made bold to reply and then began my career as a tempter of fate. In 1914, the First World War broke out and Stevens found himself in the trenches of northern France. He survived the horrors for three and a half years and was later told that the life expectancy of a soldier going over the top was, on average, 20 minutes. This fueled his need for an adrenaline rush and he started with elaborate stunts. These also helped him to support his wife and 11 children as he needed more money than he could make giving shaves and haircuts. Even his sideline as a daredevil performing high dives and parachute jumps in England barely helped cover the bills. He needed something big, something to make his reputation. In addition to his war medals, Charlie Stevens had five gold and six silver medals for his heroic achievements. These included shaving customers in a lion's cage, kissing lions, boxing lions in their cage, standing in front of knife throwers, and having an apple sliced in two with a sword, with the apple balanced on his throat. He made numerous parachute jumps and once saved a woman from being run down by a train by such a narrow margin that her dress was ripped by it. His wife, Anne, once ascended to 5,000 feet in a balloon, she also received a certificate for her bravery. The big cat stunts carried out at the Bristol Coliseum Theatre in Park Row were the reason that Stevens earned the nickname the Demon Barber of Bedminster. To make himself world famous, Charlie Stevens decided on the idea of going over the Niagara Falls in a barrel. He paid a cooper from Bath over £20 to make a barrel with two-inch thick oak staves. Stevens' greatest dream was to go over Niagara Falls in a barrel in a bid to guarantee fame and fortune, and he spent 11 years of his life planning it. And at the time, there was nothing bigger and more daredevilish that captured the world's imagination. Only two people had ever done it, and lived. It didn't matter that one, Annie Taylor, was living in poverty, or that the other, Bobby Leach, was trying to talk him out of using his heavy Russian oak barrel without first sending it on a test run. Leach's friend William Red Hill, a daredevil, 
whose sideline was rescuing people from Niagara's treacherous waters, had also tried to dissuade Charles, but to no avail. Charlie Stevens was going over, and no one was going to stop him. The wooden barrel was six foot tall, seven foot one inch in circumference at each end, and was made of two inch thick oak with metal bands for strengthening. It was also fitted with an elaborate opening device which was to be released immediately after contact with the water through a screw wheel. An army gas mask was also installed. Stephen's feet were to be secured by straps and his waist would have a band fixed to it to reduce the effect of concussion. A carefully chosen spot was selected for the drop with a support vessel close at hand to make a quick rescue. But Charlie believed that if he strapped his arms to the side of the barrel and his feet to a large anvil as ballast, he would pop up out of the foam at the bottom of the cataract, safe and right side up. As far as he was concerned, he knew what he was doing, and he was going to do it. Many of his fans across Bristol helped pay for Charles's endeavour. At the Carpenter's Arms in Newfoundland Street, Bristol, they had a whip round to buy the barrel that was to end up carrying him over Niagara Falls. Bristolians were proud of their local hero. One Amy Pruitt of St Anne's recalled... We used to tell the children that if they were naughty, we would send them to Stevens the Barbers. To help offset the cost of the expedition, which was around £140, Charlie exhibited the barrel in Bristol before leaving for America. A Toronto newspaper arranged for a Canadian film company to help with even more of the costs. Charlie Stevens had practised and thoroughly tested the equipment in London. The barrel was shipped across the Atlantic in preparation for the following month's dramatic event that was attracting interest. When he spoke about what he was going to do after the event, he said, There's no secret about the reason for my plunge. I want the money. I have a barber shop in Bristol and a good business, but I don't like barbering. When I have completed the Niagara feat, I can go back to England music halls and lectures and show my barrel. Wish me luck. Folks, wish me luck. It's a good trick if you do it, and I'll pin my money on myself to come out topside up. <laughs> Word on the street. And today, I'm taking you to Frobisher Road. This is named after one of Queen Elizabeth I's sea dogs, Sir Martin Frobisher, who was born in 1535 and died in 1594. He was the first Englishman to attempt to find a northwest passage through Canada to China, sailing from Bristol Harbour. He tried for 15 years, but was unsuccessful, although he named Frobisher Strait, where he discovered iron ore. In 1585, he sailed with Sir Francis Drake to the West Indies, and in 1588, distinguished himself against the Spanish Armada. He died at Plymouth of his wounds received when on an expedition to relieve Brest in France against the Spanish. Charlie Stevens wrote a piece for the Parsons Daily Republican, which appeared in the newspaper the day before the fateful endeavour. He said, 
If I thought there was a chance I would be killed, I wouldn't attempt to shoot Niagara Falls in a barrel this month. But there isn't a chance. I will be safe in the thundering waters, as the Indians call the falls, as I would be at home in Bristol, England. I don't expect to be a seasick as I was coming from England on the boat. On the morning of the 11th of July, 1920, while attempting to perform this feat with no police interference, a small fanfare looked on in amazement and horror. And at 8.15am, Charlie Stevens left Snyder's Point, which is located about five kilometres upstream from the falls. Stevens floated through the rapids towards Horseshoe Falls on the Canadian side. The Indianapolis Star reported, As the barrel drew near the brink of the falls, it seemed to stand on end, hesitate a second or two, and then slide gracefully over the slope, head foremost and at a slight angle. Its gleaming black and white stripes could be seen until it had fallen about halfway down the face of the cataract, then it was lost to view in the misty spray. So far, so good. But when Charles hit the water below, the anvil plunged through the bottom of the barrel, carrying most of Charles to the bottom with it. The barrel became stuck behind the falls, and it wasn't until much later that the barrel's battered remains floated out into the mist. Attached was Charles's right arm, still strapped down, with his tattoo visible that said, Don't forget me, Annie. Charles Stevens is the first daredevil to lose his life going over the falls, and the telegram to inform his wife, Anne, of his success or failure was never sent, and the first she heard of his fate was a report in a newspaper. Later, she was told that the payment of £20 from the Canadian Film Company was just enough to cover the cost of the burial of Charlie's arm. With the loss of the family's main breadwinner, Annie's eldest son, Bert, came home from the Navy and they carried on the barbershop business. Charlie Jr. went on to open a lady's hairdresser's. Charlie Stevens' arm is buried in an unmarked grave at Drummond Hill Cemetery in Niagara Falls, Ontario. He became famous for being the first of the Barrow Daredevils to die challenging the falls. Many people have attempted to go over Niagara's Horseshoe Falls, and the first one who did and survived was Annie Edson Taylor, nicknamed the Maid of the Mist. She was an American school teacher who, on her 63rd birthday, on October the 24th, 1901, became the first person to survive a trip over Niagara Falls in a barrel. She was one of eight children born to Merrick Edson and Lucretia Waring. Her father owned a flour mill and died when she was 12 years old, leaving enough money to provide a comfortable living for the family. She became a school teacher and received an honours degree in a four-year training course. During her studies, she met David Taylor, and they were married and had a son who, unfortunately, died in infancy. After her husband died in the Civil War, the New York-born Taylor moved all over the US before settling in Bay City, Michigan, around 1898. In July 1901, while reading an article about the Pan-American Exposition in Buffalo, 
she learned of the growing popularity of two enormous waterfalls located on the border of upstate New York and Canada. Strapped for cash and seeking fame, Taylor came up with the perfect attention-getting stunt. She would go over Niagara Falls in a barrel. Within the barrel, it was important to remain upright as much as possible. She had a 200-pound anvil attached to the bottom of the barrel so that the barrel would quickly right itself whenever it rolled over. She also needed to have enough air in the cavity to last until the ride was over. A couple of emergency air holes were drilled in the top of the barrel. They had cork stoppers that she could punch out if necessary. In addition, when the men sealed her in, a bicycle pump was used to pump extra air into the cavity for the trip. The system needed to be tested to see if the barrel would survive with a living thing inside. Earlier in the week, a domestic cat was put in the barrel and the barrel was sent off on the exact same journey that Taylor would make. The barrel was fine, and though some reports are that the cat suffocated, other reports are that the cat made it. There is a photograph of Annie and a cat with her barrel, so hopefully the cat made it. The barrel was five feet high and three feet in diameter. Annie Taylor rode in the boat with her team, the barrel bobbing along behind them and about a mile before the brink of the falls, the men pulled in at Grass Island, where Taylor took off her heavier clothing and climbed into the barrel, and was fastened into a harness of sorts that held her in place as much as possible. Pillows were added on either side of her head to provide cushioning, and the top was sealed in place, and the extra air was pumped in. And once in, she was towed by a small boat into the middle of the fast-flowing Niagara River, and cut loose. This was at about 4.05pm according to the New York Times and the barrel sped along, passing out of sight of the crowd now and then but racing towards Horseshoe Falls where it dropped at a height of about 158 feet. Spectators and the rescue boat were all relieved when they saw the barrel bob up from beneath the falls. However, it took the rescue boat about 20 minutes to get into position to open the barrel to see how Annie fared. About one hour and 20 minutes had elapsed from the time the barrel was first closed to the moment when the top was opened. To open the barrel, the top had to be sawed off, which took a little extra time. And that job belonged to Kid Brady, a rivman, and Carlisle Graham. When they finally managed to get the top off, Carlisle was heard to exclaim, My God, she's alive! In fact, Annie Taylor wasn't just alive, she was alive and talking. She was bumped and bruised and had a three-inch gash behind one ear. It was thought she suffered a mild concussion, but after the top of the barrel was opened, she was able to be helped out of it and walk along the shore to the Maid of the Mist dock, where a carriage was waiting to take her back to her rooming house. And there, doctors checked her throughout the night. I felt as though I was being knocked to pieces and churned all over. I struck rocks three times, and the water seemed to come in the barrel everywhere. I knew when I went over the fall and lost my senses just a minute. People here have been good to me, and I did this to help those who helped me. I hope some good will come of it. I would rather face a cannon knowing that I would be blown to pieces than go over the falls again. 
Although she enjoyed an initial wave of publicity, it didn't last. After being paid for a few of the speeches she gave, she was reduced to going from souvenir to souvenir shop to sell postcards of herself or to hope for a tip if someone wanted to take a picture of her. Her further decline was reported on March 20th, 1921, saying... Mrs. Annie Edson Taylor, the only woman who ever went over the Horseshoe Fall at Niagara and survived, and the first person to successfully shoot the falls in a barrel, is now an inmate of the Niagara County Infirmary at Lockport. She attributes her present ill health and approaching blindness to her terrible experience in plunging over the Great Cataract on October 21, 1901. When taken from the barrel, she was semi-conscious, and her clothes were covered with blood from cuts on her head. She expected to become very wealthy as a result of her spectacular feat, but realised little pecuniary benefit. It is said one of the managers engaged by her secured her barrel and travelled over the country with younger and more attractive women, who exhibited as her heroine of the falls. In 1921, she died a pauper, but a few friends raised funds so that she could be buried in the Stunters section of Oakwood Cemetery in Niagara Falls. The headstone noted her 1901 accomplishment. An interesting fact about Annie Taylor that has nothing to do with Niagara Falls is that she was once held up on a stagecoach by Jesse James and his gang. She had almost a thousand dollars hidden in her dress hem that went undetected, so she didn't have to give it up. Between 1901 and 1995, 15 people went over the falls. Ten of them survived. Among those who died were Jesse Sharp, who took the plunge in a kayak in 1990, and Robert Overcracker, who used a jet ski in 1995. But, no matter the method, going over the Niagara Falls is illegal, and survivors face charges now and stiff fines on either side of the border. Once upon a time. Boring. It was the best of times. It was the worst. You got that right. What's your problem? We want new stories. Hi, it's Frankie. And Garrett. And we host the ever-trending story, a weekly podcast where we bring to life a fictional story created by our own minds and some of the hottest, craziest trends from the internet. Find us wherever you download podcasts and be sure to join the fun on social media at EverTrendingPod. Back in the day facts. First, we'll start off with the 11th of February, 1990, when Nelson Mandela was released after being imprisoned for 27 years in South Africa. On the 12th of February, 1554, Queen of England for nine days, Lady Jane Grey, is executed for treason. She was only 16 years old. On the 13th of February, 1982, Pink Floyd's eighth studio album, Dark Side of the Moon, marks 402 weeks in the album charts. It was released on the 1st of March, 1973. The success of the album brought wealth for all four members of the band, and some of the profits were invested in the production of Monty Python and the Holy Grail. On the 14th of February, 1924, 
Thomas J. Watson renames the Computing Tabulating Recording Company, or CTR, as International Business Machines, IBM. On the 15th of February 1936, Adolf Hitler announces construction of the Volkswagen Beetle, or the People's Car. It was designed by Ferdinand Porsche and his design team at Porsche. What was unusual was the car had a rear engine. Only a small number were made before World War II halted production, and after the war, production soared, aided by an iconic advertising campaign, Think Small. And finally, on the 16th of February, 1861, Abraham Lincoln stops his train at Westfield on his way to Washington to thank 11-year-old Grace Bedell in person for her advice to grow a beard to gain more votes. Nicknamed The Beetle, it overtook the Model T Ford as the best-selling car in the world in 1972, selling over 15 million. It was only after 80 years that Volkswagen announced in 2018 that it would finally cease production in 2019. Well, the end of the show is hurtling towards us, but don't worry, because I'll be here same time, same place next week. As always, I'd love to thank those that really bring the stories to life. And in this show, they were... Steve Shepherd from Bradley Stoke Radio, Molly Jeffries and Sam Roberts from St Stephen's Drama Group in Bristol, as well as my good friends Garrett and Frankie from the Ever Trending Story podcast. Thank you, one and all. You have been listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show. Now, this podcast has been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke Radio show in Bristol, England. If you liked it, please leave a rating and maybe a comment. If you didn't, well, let's just leave it at that, shall we? I would love to hear from you. You can get in touch with me via Twitter or Facebook using at UK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK. Or, alternatively, you can email me at info at backtracker.co.uk. By the way, the tune in the background... That's by The Model Folk. You can find out more about them at themodelfolk.com. So thank you so much for listening. And until next time, guys, take care and look after each other. <laughs>